You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Investment Ideas. I'm Ed Harrison here for Real Vision. I'm talking to David Rosenberg, who's the founder of Rosenberg Research. David, welcome back. Thanks, Ed. It's uh, great to see you again. Next time in person, I hope. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a long Although, time, as you know. <laughs> My stuff, I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, uh, there's so many things that we can talk about right now, but let's let's start here because we were just, uh, you know, teeing it up before we got on camera talking about the disconnect uh, between shares and uh, and uh, the the economy. And this is something that you write about a lot. Uh, You know, by the way, let me just point out uh, for your own purposes that uh, people can get a. uh, they can get a free trial. Is that right? To your uh, yeah. newsletter. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you do that? Well, it's uh, it's not just a newsletter. It's uh, it's everything we do, both verbal and uh, written. Uh, and uh, well, I would just say go on the Rosenberg Research website uh, and uh, click on the uh, the free uh, the free trial button, and uh, you'll get prompted to come in, and uh, you can kick our tires, uh, get a, a free month's. Uh, uh, subscription uh, of everything, not not just the daily. There's it's a lot more than that, uh, and um, yeah, yeah, and enjoy. Uh, I think that we're going to uh, maybe we'll put a link in so people can do that uh, after we do this uh, interview. I-, I noticed, by the way, that you were talking to a lot of great people uh, coming up: Lee Cooperman, Peter Bookvar, who I talk to often, Lacey Hunt. Uh, great uh, stuff that you have, and I- I- I'm guessing those webcasts are available as well. Is that right? Uh, well, um, those webcasts uh, are actually for our premium clients. Uh, so if you actually come on for the free trial, th- that's really the only thing that uh, we don't uh, give out as part of that trial. That's uh, uh, because it's called a premium package for a reason. And uh, yeah, we've got, um, you know, Howard Marks is going to be coming on and uh, we've already uh, roped in uh, Paul McCulley. Uh, and you mentioned Lacey Hunt, um, you know, late last year, we had Neil Ferguson on uh, and uh, Jim Grant and uh, my hero and mentor, Bob Farrell. Uh, so it's uh, it's turned into a great uh, venue uh, for people to actually ask questions uh, to these legends that uh, you would normally, you know, have um, the ability to have contact with. But those but so that's actually look that that's a bit of a ploy. I've got to say a marketing ploy. Uh, to get people turned on from prospects to clients. Uh, right. So, uh, but the reality is that if you do uh, sign on as a client, uh, you will have access to all the library, uh, all the archives of these webcasts going back to last year. Um, so you might miss Leon Cooperman, uh, who's on uh, in a couple of days. Uh, like I said, we've got Howard Marks coming on uh, as well, Liz on Saunders. We have a, a whole great... Uh, menu of um, of uh, really legendary uh, 
investors and macro market types. Uh, but you know, uh, if you if you're tardy and signing on to uh, Rosenberg Research as a client, uh, you can at least go back and have a look at these interviews uh, on the on uh, uh, as part of that. Well, you know, uh, one of the reasons I mentioned those uh, webcasts is because I was reading your. Uh, daily. This is the, uh, you know, your early morning with Dave uh, Missive. And uh, it showed these, uh, these upcoming guests. And, you know, I know some of them had been saying some positive things about uh, the markets uh, four or five months ago. But what are they saying? What are you saying now about this disconnect? Well, actually, um, I haven't noticed uh, that there was a a big bullish bias, uh, you know, coming out of uh, the guests that I've had on. Um, I, I think that you know, it's uh, if anything been a, a dose of reality. No, nobody has really been a big cheerleader for uh, the risk on trade from the guests I've had on. Uh, you know, uh, we'll see. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen what Leon Cooperman's had to say. Uh, oh, yeah. He is. Oh. He is a. He, he he's a realist, and I wouldn't actually say that he's bearish, but he's a lot like me, saying, you know, let's just face facts. We are in the midst of a huge financial bubble, as Bob Farrell would famously say, uh, "Bubbles." Uh, you can invest in bubbles, uh, but they don't end up correcting by going sideways. Uh, so I'm just saying that. Look, as you have a foot on the gas, have a foot on the brakes at the same time, and at least have some hedges and insurance policies in there. Um, because the reality is that bubbles can go further than you think. Uh, they're fun to trade. Um, but we have to be mindful that we are in a huge mania. There's no doubt about it. And, and for people that say, well, we can justify these valuations based on where interest rates are. Well, we know that interest rates aren't exactly static and that they can actually sometimes disguise um, underlying weak fundamentals. Uh, I always say you can't have it both ways. People that say, well, um, well, the interest rates are fundamentally low. We can justify these price earnings multiples. They're inflated justifiably by where interest rates are. Well, interest rates are at these abnormally low levels, either because they're being manipulated by central banks. So if the interest rates being manipulated, then by definition, the valuations underscoring the stock market are being manipulated. Just know the, know the, know the investment background that you're investing in. Um, but let's say that interest rates would be where they are with or without the central bank uh, maneuvers and interventions. But what are, what are the interest rate markets telling you about the future of economic growth? If the interest rate uh, uh, landscape is telling you something as an investor, it's that we're into a prolonged period of extremely weak economic growth. Well, guess what? Corporate earnings are part of that economic landscape. So you can have it both ways. Uh, so uh, the rates market's telling you something if they're not late manipulated about the future that tells me, and that's part of my fundamental view, is that the earnings that are embedded, the actual earnings embedded in the stock market today are not going to live to fruition. Well, you know, I generally agree with you, uh, but let me just play devil's advocate here for a second, okay? Let's say, for instance, that you that, that what you're saying is true, but uh, as it turns out, Apple and Tesla and all these other companies, they're so good that and they're going to do really well even in this poor economic environment and there's such a large portion of the indices that you know the indices go up just because they go up uh it's discounting a bright future only for a select portion of the market i would tend to agree with that and uh you know one of my thematics uh, has been to be focused on uh, aspects of the market uh companies and sectors that uh are our growth with utility-like characteristics. So I was saying for a while, uh, you know, 
does Microsoft, for example, fit those characteristics of growth with utility-like characteristics? Yes. Google, yes. Uh, Amazon, uh, obviously. Uh, and uh, you can argue Walmart. I mean, the thing that I was trying to say is that you want to own growth with utility-like characteristics. I had a client ask me today, well, you know, how do you screen for utility-like characteristics? Well, it's what you use every day. Focus on what you actually use every day. Uh, and uh, that's really what you want to buy. It's so different than when people used to say to me 20 years ago or 10 years ago when oil prices were skyrocketing, uh, you know, and, and people were complaining about filling up their cars and it's draining my pocketbook, draining my pocketbook. What do I do? Uh, because when I go fill up my car, it's, it's draining half the money in my wallet. I say, well, you know, the best hedge is to buy the energy companies that are making a fistful of money off the fact that your, your, your pocketbook is half what it was because you just filled up your SUV. And back to your initial question about the disconnect, and I get this every day, still get it, even if we go through a couple of weeks of a wobble in the market, the overriding question is, how did we get this surging stock market um, with the economy uh, still in such fundamentally weak shape? And because you're comparing apples and oranges, uh, the stock market, the S&P 500, is really just the, the product of two numbers, earnings and the multiple. And uh, if we didn't have the multiple expansion since March, <laughs> we wouldn't be where we are. We wouldn't be 3,800 on the S&P 500, right? Uh, the multiple is about animal spirits. Uh, the multiple is about hope and faith. And it's actually about discounted cash flows. GDP is not a discounted cash flow. GDP is right on the tip of our nose. It's actually in the here and now. It's uh, either the total amount of spending, or the total amount of income, the total amount of production in the economy today. And the stock market doesn't live today. It lives out in the future. And that's why interest rates are so important is because of those discounted cash flows. And that's what you're really buying. What are you buying when you're in the equity market? Um, you're buying a discounted um, earning stream. Uh, you're buying these resi residual cash flows. Uh, and keep in mind at the same time that profits are basically 10% of the economy, important part of the economy. Um, but, you know, you're not buying wages and salaries and benefits. You're buying profits. And that's a part of the economy. It's not the whole economy. So people ask me this all the time. The disconnect between the economy and between the stock market, they really, when push comes to shove, the real answer is that they reside in different time zones. The stock market is out in the future. GDP we just got GDP last week, right? GDP, third quarter GDP, fourth quarter GDP. Now we're talking about what's the first quarter looking like. GDP is the here and now, and the stock market is out in the future. Well, you know, uh, here's the, the reason I think a lot of people are asking that. They're saying to themselves, look, you know, every single time that I've uh, seen in the past that we've had a recession, let's call it 73, 74, 80, 82, 90, 91, uh, you know, uh, 2001, 2008, bad things happen to the market because, you know, we had a recession, uh, prices adjusted as a result. Why isn't that happening now? That's what they're asking. Well, uh, you know, the, um, the reality is that uh, the financial economy and the real economy uh, have really been disconnected for some time. Uh, ultimately, if we're going to have a recession, uh, there's going to be some sort of shock uh, that causes this $20 trillion beast called U.S. GDP uh, to take a haircut. Uh, you know, this last time around, 
it wasn't a monetary tightening shock. It was a, a health shock. Uh, you know, you talk about 73, 74, we can go to 1979, 1980. Uh, it was no price shock. Uh, you go back to 1989, 90, uh, it was a commercial real estate shock. Uh, you go back to 2001, 2002, uh, it was a really a shock being driven by the tech wreck uh, that we just overbuilt so much of the technology sector. Uh, and then had a broadening impact on the economy. Uh, the financial shock, well, really, you know, when I was talking about the recession going into 2008, the fundamental reason was that we had once again overbuilt the housing market. Uh, it turned out to be even worse than I ever thought it was going to be, but we had a housing shock morph into a financial shock. So you're quite right. Um, you know, people like to talk about, well, you know, this was a health shock. It wasn't a, a man-made shock. Well, I don't know, was the oil embargo of 73.75 a, a, a domestic, did we do that? No, it was still a shock. 79.80, still a shock. Um, so to me, it doesn't matter whether it's external or internal or what the cause was. Um, the business cycle is the business cycle. And uh, and there'll be another shock where, where it's going to come from. Uh, and it could be a, a financial shock. Uh, it could be a wealth shock. Uh, if the stock market were to correct, uh, you know, that's quite possible. Uh, or it could just be a situation where it takes longer uh, than we thought to get out of this uh, pandemic. And, and maybe it's not really a, another huge recession, but it's going to feel like one because we're just going to be bouncing along the bottom with these tremendous amounts of excess capacity in the economy. Yeah. So um, let's talk. Let me let me switch gears here for a second and talk to you about something that uh, you wrote in uh, your latest missive that I thought was interesting. Um, you said, you know, it's easy to forget about uh, amidst the pandemic, which we were just talking about, the vaccines, fiscal policy, and GameStop, that the biggest challenge for the Biden administration will be China's accelerating economic threat to the U.S. economic hegemony. Uh, I thought that was interesting. You know, uh, all these things that are current today that people are talking about, and you're saying that in the political economy, actually, the Biden administration, the thing that they have to worry about the most is this tete-a-tete, if you will, between China and the U.S. Uh, explain why that's the case. Well, I think that everybody's got to uh, bone up on the Thucydides uh, trap, uh, which over uh, the centuries and the millennia, uh, in the few times we've seen this in the past, uh, where an existing dominant power uh, is then challenged by an up-and-coming power. Uh, and we've seen this in the past. More often than not, they end up in some sort of military skirmish. I'm not going to say this is going to end up in a military skirmish uh, unless, <laughs> unless um, you know, uh, Beijing decides to poke the U.S. in the eyes and do in Taiwan what it's done in Hong Kong. Um, but, um, but the Chinese are, are getting more bold, uh, more ambitious, uh, they've come out of the pandemic stronger. Look, there's even more distrust uh, commentaries about uh, whether or not the pandemic was started in China and whether it was done on purpose. We all know that uh, there was not exactly a whole lot of transparency information withheld. Um, but I think that the world does hold China in more distrust. And then you start saying, well, but then why is the rest of the world still doing business with China? And it's because it's become such an integrated part uh, of the global uh, economic network. 
So uh, there's a few things that are happening right now. The first is that um, there's no doubt that China has emerged. They were the first to emerge because their society is built uh, in, in an obedient fashion for obvious reasons. Uh, they lick the pandemic. Uh, the irony of ironies is that, is that the country that started it is the first country that emerged from it. Not that it's been perfect, but they were the first ones to emerge. They're one of the only countries in the world whose GDP growth was actually positive in 2020. Think about that for a second, that even with all the massive fiscal and monetary stimulus, the U.S. economy uh, still contracted last year the most that it did since uh, coming out of World War II in 1946. Um, Chinese growth was positive. Uh, the consensus is over 8% growth for this coming year. Every ounce of their growth, because because we know that they have a declining working age population, uh, their productivity numbers are stupendous. Um, the, the point here is that China is coming out of the pandemic much stronger uh, than they have been. Their, their, their global position is stronger. Uh, they just signed, um, you know, it's not been inked yet with the EU, but uh, that, uh, that investment uh, agreement, uh, they just signed a trade deal that's going to make them a more powerful uh, supply hub uh, with more access to supply chains within Asia. Um, and this is where I think that the Trump administration went wrong, uh, you know, with TPP was that was one way to corner China. Of course, going back, you know, more than 20 years, allowing China to WTO, um, you know, without uh, more handcuffs on a whole bunch of things, uh, you know, from uh, copyright and, uh, and uh, uh, transparency and environmental and labor. Uh, but you can't cry over spilled milk. The reality is that China's ascendancy has accelerated and now it's going to accelerate even more. China's capture of global GDP uh, is going to accelerate. Uh, and there, you know, keep in mind, one of the few countries, once again, that had positive growth last year, one of the few countries that actually have positive interest rates, they're actually now allowing for defaults. They're eliminating zombie companies and actually are curbing their state-owned enterprise share of their economy at a time when the United States is actually nurturing zombie companies uh, in the name of trying to maintain the social fabric. Um, but the U.S. is going to have to pay for a lot of this debt largesse one way or the other. Uh, China did not blow its brains out on fiscal and monetary policy to the extent that the U.S. did. Uh, so their growth prospects, by definition, they will not have to address. They did not expand QE. They did not expand fiscal policy. They don't have as many imbalances relative to the U.S. as they had before the pandemic. So this creates all sorts of challenges um, because, you know, let's let's take out, you know, uh, you know, the geopolitics. Let's just talk about that we're going to go into a future now, okay? And 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 the share, the global GDP share China is capturing is going to intensify dramatically. And this is a big threat to the United States. Uh, this is the first time in our lives, anybody on the call, the first time in our lives we were seeing the economic hegemony in the United States being threatened by a rival power. And a rival power, this is not like between the UK and the US, you know, right. say after, you know, after World War One. This is this is not the same thing. Okay. Uh, because the US and the UK, uh, we had, I mean, democracy, we had a similar culture. Um, this is actually, uh, you know, China is a um, is a major source of global economic strength, but it's also a major source of instability. And they don't have a democracy. They have a different culture. Uh, and, um, and they are, 
huge rivals. Um, so the question is going to be, how does the U.S. contain China's economic ambitions? Because uh, China is vying for the U.S. as the wealthiest and uh, and largest economy in the world. That's going to happen, and, and, and the U.S. is going to resist that. The question is, how is it going to play out? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, that is a good question. Give me, you know, because uh, I, I noticed, I don't know if you saw the Biden administration, uh, how he signed this executive order, you know, this Buy American Act uh, last week. And, and then uh, we have this thing where the, the uh, phase one deal that the Trump administration did with China is coming up. You know, the, the, that's because of the tariffs on China from the Trump administration. The Chinese have only fulfilled, you know, 42% of their commitment there. You know, how does, what do you think the Biden administration can do and what are they likely to do? Well, don't forget the phase one deal uh, came at a very opportune time for China because they had a crisis uh, in terms of food supply because they had to slaughter so many pigs, um, you know, the, the previous year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that was a great deal actually for China uh, in terms of uh, taking in uh, U.S. agricultural imports and uh, making it seem like America won. Uh, you know, so so Joe Biden runs with Buy America. I, I mean, that's that's like, um, I mean, that's like baseball and apple pie. Uh, and I mean, so Buy America. Who who doesn't run on Buy America? Who doesn't run on Buy America? Uh, I remember when uh, President Obama was um, debating Hillary Clinton. Uh, I think at the University of Ohio during the primaries, and we're going back. Uh, I mean, we're going all the way back, all the way back to when to two thousand and eight. And uh, and excoriated her for her free trade policy stance. Um, you know, do you remember that? And 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 actually, I think that Barack Obama turned out to be pretty much, you know, extending, you know, <laughs> the pro free trade stance that 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 then got somehow somehow got Donald Trump elected. Uh, you know, in two thousand and sixteen. So, buy America. Come on, what does it mean? Uh, so it doesn't mean anything. It means what? That the government's going to have greater procurement policies in favor of U.S. companies. Okay. So like in a $20 trillion U.S. economy, what that's going to do what exactly? So uh, I would say, look, we come out of this uh, pandemic. Um, uh, there's going to be lots of changes. You're seeing it in, in, in global supply chains. Uh, and, and there's going to be more in the way of procurement globally, not just in the U.S., of things that are deemed to be in the national interest, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, semiconductors, food supply. So, but I mean, you're running a campaign called Buy America. Buy America. Joe Biden says Buy America. Just say, like, vote for me, you know, Buy America. A chicken in every pot, right? Uh, so it's like FDR. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, basically, uh, you can argue that uh, at the margin, uh, we will become more isolationist, nationalistic. This, the, these trends are already taking place, having an impact on global trade flows. What I'm talking about is that we can say, buy America all you want. Buy America all you want. The reality is that China, okay, China is, is infiltrating other parts of the world, okay? They right. basically yeah. sign on an investment deal with Europe. Now, it hasn't been signed by the EU yet, but it probably will be because it's in the EU's best interest. 
Um, that's so important. China is globally right now. Uh, China just signed a free, uh, you know, a new trade deal with, uh, I mean, India was left out. Maybe there's an opportunity there for the U.S. with India. At least there's a democracy and they speak English there and it's a well-educated society. But China goes and signs. It's interesting that, uh, that you know, on the way in, Donald Trump decides I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turf TPP, which would actually isolate China to some extent. No, we're not going to do that because I want to sign bilateral deals. I'm a bilateral guy. Uh, I'm not a multilateral guy. Um, and then next thing you know, on the way out, the irony of ironies yet again, China signs a deal with the rest of Asia. Look, right, right now, who's doing deals, deals, deals? Who's doing? So as the United States is saying, buy America, who's now infiltrating Africa? Who's infiltrating Africa through the Silk Road and the transportation networks? China. China. Do you, do you hear anybody talking about Africa? Do you hear anybody ever talking about Africa? Well, Africa, although it's a bastion of political instability, is home to a lot of the world's resources. Like most of the world's cobalt comes out of the Congo, as an example. Well, you need that for battery technology. And you're going to need that if you believe that the world's going to be populated only with, with uh, electric vehicles in 20 or 30 years. And we'll see about that. Um, but you see, as, as we're all basically focused on a whole bunch of other things, you know, stimulus checks and uh, filibusters and buy America and just getting distracted. I got news for you. China's doing a whole bunch of other things behind the scenes that don't even make it to the back pages of the daily newspapers. Um, and so this is what I'm talking about. China, you see, the thing is that all of a sudden, once again, like we have, a, we, we, what happens? We have an election in early November. A week goes by, what are we talking about? The midterms, the midterms. Oh, we've got to get this done in two years. Got to get this done in two years. China, you see, the thing is China, and whether you dislike China or you detest China, you hate China, here's the reality. Not up for debate. They have a long-term vision. That's, a re that's why they have lasted thousands of years on dynasties. Um, and they have, uh, have multi-year strategies and economic visions and goals. Uh, and we're living in a two-year political cycle. Um, so it's interesting that when you're saying buy America, um, China's going out and, and doing different deals with all other parts of the world right now to secure, uh, to secure their supply uh, and their supply uh, networks and supply chains. Uh, they're going to come out of this much stronger. They already are. Uh, and this is going to pose, look, this, if it poses an economic threat to the United States, rest assured, the United States, even under a Democrat administration, uh, they will resist it at all costs. Right, and then the question becomes, like you said, how and, and, and how does it how does it manifest itself, and right. that's what's unseen. And then what are the other? And as, as China's strength grows, how much bolder are they going to be when it comes to their influence in the rest of China? And I would say this much: the you know the the, the I, I would say that um, keep an eye on what happens in Taiwan, because that's always been where the U.S. draws. Hong Kong was never a red line. Taiwan's a red line, and as China's strength in the global economic and financial realm grows. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this Biden administration uh, is going to be tested. And that will be one test. I could tell you right now, if you're looking for a black swan, mm. China and Taiwan is definitely a black swan. We can talk, we can call it a gray swan since you already told us, you know, it, it won't be black, it, it, you know, We'll, we'll, we'll know there's the, uh, it's a now a known unknown, but it's, it, you well, know. We, we just don't know how the U.S., well, here's the unknown though. I know it's right. known unknown, but here's the unknown. 
here's the unknown is how would the U.S. respond? That's right. the unknown. And, you know, when we think about China, uh, you already mentioned uh, natural resources in uh, in uh, Africa. You mentioned the deals with uh, with Europe. We also know that they're getting natural resources in South America. They're actually uh, exporting their vaccines there uh, as well, uh, uh, really infiltrating, uh, you know, lines of communication, helping people out during the pandemic in order to get a quid pro quo. And then you also talked about Asia, because that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of, you know, regional deepening where the, the Chinese are, because Asia's done pretty well. And I know that you, uh, for a long time, were talking about, uh, you know, uh, non-China Asian EM as a, as, a, um, as a play. So two things here. Talk to me about the Chinese and their regional deepening within Asia and also about that play of uh, Asian EM and, and whether or not those values are not as good as they once were. Well, look, we, we put out uh, a report on this many months ago called uh, Go East, Young Man and Young Woman. And so, you know, people kind of get the wrong idea that, you know, they, they look at the stock market and they think the S&P 500 is the only index around. So uh, we turned bullish on Asia early uh, and that includes China. And um, and I would say that it all comes out of uh, who's going to come out of the pandemic stronger. And who's coming out of the pandemic stronger are the countries that dealt with it. Uh, you know, whether by brutal force or not is really immaterial. Uh, yeah, it's a different culture, more obedient culture. Uh, in China, you can actually <laughs> force people. Uh, nobody's going to go uh, to the Politburo uh, with rifles and uh, and threatening to uh, to kidnap anybody. Okay, uh, and so they licked it. Uh, they licked it, um, and, uh, and 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 their economy is on more of a solid footing. And, uh, you know, again, I just say this because I, I know that when I talk about this with my clients, it, it irks people to think that you're bullish on China, um, uh, a bull in a China shop. But the, um, the reality is that, you know, they came out stronger than they were before. They, they licked the pandemic more quickly uh, and because they could. And they didn't um, jeopardize whatever sanctity they have on fiscal and monetary policy. I'm just noticing, like, look, Ed, Ed, I'm noticing Europe and the United States. I mean, I mean, in fact, let's say that the United States is moving towards more European model. Hmm. Where they're talking in, in the U.S. about MMT. They're talking raising minimum wage, which I'm not, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, it's all about income inequality in the United States. The Democrats believe they got elected for income inequality. And, of course, income inequality has gone to extremes. Uh, that much is true. Uh, but take a look at you know, fiscal policy, look at the debts that have been amassed. Uh, look at the Fed's balance sheet. None of this has been, none of this happened in the past year in China because they didn't have to. Uh, and in the meantime, as, you know, I saw a statistic that because of the Fed's policies, 20% of the S&P 500 now is, is, is uh, replete with companies that don't make any money or right. don't make enough money to, to cover their uh, interest costs, what's called zombies. Um, and uh, it, 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 and in, in, in China, they're actually allowing for uh, as smooth as they can. There's been a default cycle. You don't, you know, there's been a default cycle in China. Has there been a default cycle in the United States? They haven't, see, they haven't let the Shemperian destruction take place. 
uh, maybe for the greater good of social stability. It just, it can't happen. It can't happen. In China, you're seeing a default cycle take place. China is sitting, by the way, on $3 trillion of reserves. Whose currency has been strong? China, the yuan, or the US dollar? They've amassed over $3 trillion of reserves. They're, they have the financial capacity to smooth this default cycle, and that's what they're doing. They're allowing defaults in China. Wow. Who's been tightening monetary policy in the past couple of months? All of a sudden, yeah, you mentioned earlier, some of the numbers are starting to soften after China came out of the gates, their number, because they have been actually firming policy. Um, and now I guess they go on pause right now. But as the United States has only been easing monetary policy to a stratosphere that we've never seen before, and we can't even really fully comprehend. So um, maybe you can say that China is trying to get ahead of asset bubbles there. At the United States, we're really trying to promote asset bubbles. Totally different. And so I'd say that, yeah, for these, uh, look, these other, you just got numbers out of Korea. You know, their, their, their export growth, double digits, a lot of that's going to China. I remember right. China still absorbing a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the shipments coming from these other Asian countries. Uh, and these other Asian countries, because again, because of their society, it's because of their society. They are just basically more obedient. Uh, and the bottom line is that they've dealt with these pandemics before. So they were a step ahead of us because they've actually had to deal with these. They've come out of the uh, crisis to varying extents uh, a lot uh, quicker uh, than is the case in the developed world. So if you're going to run screens on countries that are further ahead, uh, getting past the pandemic, um, you know, those are the ones you want to focus on. So uh, plus up until recently, their valuations and their markets were a lot more attractive. They closed a lot of that. I've actually said if I was in my daily, because I've been asked once again, the questions, are you still bullish on Asia? Well, I've actually, if I was a Wall Street analyst, which I'm not, I'd say I moved from an accumulate to a hold right now. Um, but I, I tell you one sleeper, one sleeper is India. One sleeper is India. And notwithstanding the fact that Modi's reforms uh, have been difficult. Look, it's a very difficult country to manage. Um, but I, I was writing about this from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, that um, that India is the um, silver lining in the cloud. Like, what, what, what should the Biden administration do? Okay, as I'm looking at this in a historical standpoint, like how did Nixon and Kissinger ultimately deal with the Soviet Union uh, back in the early 70s? Was cozying up, uh, was 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 cozying up to China. The whole the whole thing about detente was really about curbing Russia, uh, Soviet Union as a nuclear threat. This is about China as an economic threat. Well, you know what's interesting is that China, India, India's got its own domestic production of vaccines. Uh, they are on the verge of herd immunity, by the way. Uh, and um, I think that there's going to be some strategic ties we're going to see behind the scenes. Because one thing India needs is it needs infrastructure. You see, that's what China has. India needs infrastructure. Who can build that infrastructure? Who is among the best in the world to building infrastructure? Well, it's American companies. So I'm actually, as you're talking about Asia, India has been on my radar screen for quite and a while. And how are the valuations there? And uh, well, it's really, uh, you know, it's a, I don't find it to be an overly expensive stock market. And of course, it's lagged most of the other uh, indices so far this year, um, but I think that it is a is a it's a country that has the potential to be re-rated uh, and re-rated in a sense that I, I think that uh, when we're talking earlier about how does the U.S. contain China's ambitions, and I've written about this several times, uh, is through India, through India. 
Uh, India could be uh, a uh, the partner with the strategic partner with the U.S. Uh, to rival China's ambitions, much like the U.S. used China as a way to curb Russia's ambitions back in the early 70s. So that's how I can envisage uh, this thing playing out. Um, but India, India right now is a uh, it looks very interesting to me in in in, in that geopolitical partnership aspect. Um, but also, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of the agricultural forms uh, have been slow to take off, there's uh, if, if if this plays out the way that I think it's going to, there's going to be all sorts of incentives for American companies to invest in Indian infrastructure. And that's not on the radar screen right now any more than back in the in the late 80s, nobody was talking about China. Now we're always talking about China. Uh, and I think India is a, is a real sleeper in terms of being re-rated uh, for future accelerating growth, or actually potentially overtaking. And by the way, I think India this coming year is going to be faster GDP growth uh, than China. And it's an investable uh, market. So that's something else. You're talking about Asia. Look, it's not a homogeneous region, but that's uh, that's that has been in our radar screen and and has remained that way. You know, uh, let's let's go full circle back to where we started, which is that disconnect. Uh, we talked about uh, why that disconnect between the real economy exists, but uh, and the uh, financial economy. But what about the real economy? What, what's your forward-looking view of what's happening in the United States at at the moment? And and, and by the way, before you even go into that, how much of that is prefaced on the the virus? Uh, because you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that that has a lot to say. Right. Well, you know, uh, as you've also written about, it's it's a race. It's really a, a race between time, uh, and I think you refer to these as gray swans, which I thought was very elegant. Um, yeah, it's 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 the the vaccinations, uh, you know, versus uh, uh, the ongoing spread and these new variants, uh, you know, which have complicated things. But to me, that's just a matter of timing. Uh, you know. Do we? I mean, the markets. The markets seem to be thinking that uh, we're all gonna we're gonna reach herd immunity or broad immunity by the third quarter, by the end of the second quarter, and then it's going to be off to the races. Right. I think the yeah. timing is very difficult. I mean, who 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 really knows? Who really knows? Uh, I can tell you, sitting up here in Canada, it could be next year. Right. And you have a situation in Israel where you know they're the poster child now of success. And as they vaccinate everybody, everything is, is locked down. So you have the good news in the vaccinations. Things are locked down. It's just a matter of timing. Look, my, my view is that my view is that we're going to get past the pandemic. Uh, I just don't know. Is it the third quarter? Is it the fourth quarter? If you're going to ask me if I'm if I'm saying from a United States perspective, mm-hmm. without getting into the timing issue, uh, this time next year, will the pandemic be behind us? I absolutely believe that. So from a market's perspective, um, you know, there could be some dislocation if it doesn't happen that quickly. The markets can be very tempestuous. Um, but I do believe that this will be over by the end of the year, uh, certainly in the next 12 months. Uh, we'll be talking about something else. Where I disagree, where I disagree with the consensus view, where I disagree with the market's view, because the market's got a certain view as to the timing. The, the market's got uh, is pricing in the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think the light at the end of the tunnel is, is difficult because that's timing. And then the market's pricing in life after 
we get past the light at the end of the tunnel. So there's really two things here. And I'm not an infectious disease specialist. Nobody really knows for sure when the pandemic is really in the rearview mirror for good. Uh, I'm estimating that I'd really be surprised if in a year's time, we're still where we are today. Fine. My fundamental disagreement is life after the light at the end of the tunnel. It's amazing to me that people are actually writing about the roaring 20s. People are actually drawing a comparison between the next 10 years and the 1920s. Things could not be any different uh, than, uh, you know, I'm calling it the boring 20s. But light at the end of the, of the tunnel is one thing. But life after it, I, I think that, because don't forget the stock market is really, if you're thinking about it as a long duration animal, it's pricing in, it's, it's, it's pricing in that things are going back to normal. Well, firstly, I say, okay, so we're going to go back to normal. Let's assume that you're right, that we're going back to normal. Well, what was that normal? It was, it was 10 years of the weakest economic expansion of all time. We couldn't really get inflation much above 2%. Uh, it was, yeah, the new normal. So, so if we're going back to normal, let's see, normal was in the fourth quarter of 2018. Um, Jay Powell told you he wanted to get to neutral on the funds rate, which was 3%. He couldn't get to 2.5%. Couldn't get to 2.5% without everything just rolling over, then we have the Powell pivot. Well, what happened there? Well, look, yeah. So what happened there is that we just have too much debt. We just have too much debt. And we have more debt now than we've ever had before. People don't understand that when you add up, even with the deleveraging in the household sector, which is a behavioral thing, uh, and that's gonna be ongoing, okay? Household, business, government. We're up to basically, uh, you know, what's the number? 380% of GDP. Total debt, total debt is almost uh, four times more than the level of GDP. And I know it's a stock flow, but here's the deal. As Joe Biden would say, here's the deal. That's why interest rates can't go up. Can you imagine if interest rates went up, think about if interest rates went up a hundred basis points on that level of debt. uh, I mean, I mean, you're talking about, I mean, the level of debt is, it's almost 800. Do people know that the level of debt in the United States is uh is almost 80 trillion so do the math of what, what so what is like like that's basically what 800 billion dollars of uh or I should say it's 80 trillion 80 trillion of debt uh and all of a sudden if rates back up 100 basis points and stay there you, you just subtracted four percent of the gdp you see you can't do that that's why interest rates so they have no staying power and that's what happened there's too much debt nobody factors that in nobody factors in the the mountain of debt what that means for the fiscal and credit multiplier, why is it that 25% uh, money supply growth isn't generating inflation is because the credit multiplier is broke and that's why velocity is down about as much as the money supply is up. And the, and the money velocity is linked to this gargantuan debt load that we have that we just acts as a huge constraint on domestic demand. So we haven't talked about the fact that we did not have this coming out of 1918-19. We did not have this massive debt tourniquet. In fact, the, the fiscal deficit GDP ratio is over 100%. The starting point in 1920 was 10%. Uh, there was no fiscal deficit. We have a fiscal deficit now that is what, 20% of GDP and rising. At some point, you know, even if you don't believe that they're gonna raise taxes next year, there's something called Ricardian equivalence, which is that people can see the future and know that my tax liability somehow, someone's going to pay for this. And so that's what's happening. So in terms of the future, a couple of things. Um, uh, we have far too much debt. 
that's a huge constraint on growth. If you're asking how is how is it that despite all the stimulus on the fiscal side in the previous cycle, all the monetary stimulus, I mean, come on, come on. The, the Fed didn't start to tighten policy till we were, what, like a, a, at least, um, uh, you know, seven years into the cycle. Right. You know, weakest economic cycle. Well, it's because of these uh, negative debt dynamics. You know, we basically, Europe has followed Japan and we followed Europe on the way to Japan. And that's really what the story is. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have a couple of quarters of great growth. Yes, people will go out to restaurants again. People will go out and they'll fly. And it'll be a couple of quarters. You know, what people call pent-up demand. You know, this is something very interesting. People say there's going to be a pent-up demand release. What does that even mean in the service sector, pent-up demand? What does that mean? Like in a normal recession, you know, you f- you forego buying a car for a year, you go buy a car when the recession is over. Okay. What is so so basically uh I didn't get my hair cut. I usually get my hair cut uh 12 times a year, but next year I'm gonna go 24 times to make up for the, the 12 <laughs> that I didn't. Like, or or basically I go to restaurants twice a day, I'll go four times a day. What is this pent-up demand nonsense? It, you, you're going to have a release. You're going to have a rush, and it's going to allow. How do you capitalize that? Even you're going to have a rush. Yes, people will dine to get out, and then reality is going to set in. And here's the reality. And what's very interesting is that through the pandemic, people were spending money. People were spending money, uh, and uh, and so what's interesting is that what were they spending money on? Uh, and of course, look, we had all the stimulus checks, but then you know we we weren't paying the housekeeper, we weren't traveling, uh, and uh, we weren't eating out. But I started noticing right away, right away looking at the at the retail sales data and getting really, really into the weeds. Sales of like bread makers and crock pots and, and cookbooks uh, and, um, and expensive wine, expensive booze, uh, paint. Uh, you know, one of the first things that flew off the shelves, Ed, were um, uh, retail auto parts. Like basically people know how to, how to, how to, how to, how to change their how to change their own oil in their car? They, we we become a nation of chefs and sommeliers. We've renovated the house, um, spending on merchandise, spending on merchandise uh, in the past year up until the last couple of negative consumer spending prints. The year-over-year growth in stuff was over ten percent. So, uh, and you can you're going to renovate your homes or paint your homes or put on a new floor covering uh, or buy all this new kitchenware. Um, how many times like that investments already been made. Uh, and so there's going to be a, you can call pent up demand and services. I have problems with that, but there'll be a rush. We know that there will be a rush. Um, but then you're going to find that there's going to be pent down, pent down, pent down demand for all right. this stuff. Uh, and when we're talking about like, it's, it's funny. So I, I talk to people, talk to my clients, talk to colleagues. They say, boom, we're going to boom in airlines, Berman cruise lines, boom and eating out all these booms in, in recreational services, theme parks and concerts and sporting events. And I go, okay, let's assume that you're right. That's 6% of consumer spending and 4% of GDP. So on your pent-up demand story, and look, I don't want to sound like uh, me or the donkey, but okay, that's 4% of GDP. Okay, so run with it. That's your bullish story, 4% of GDP. And there's a lot of other stuff that we've already over-consumed on. Like, are you really going to go buy the third car on the laneway? 
so there's other aspect of all the stuff that we've already bought that we're not are you gonna are you really gonna go out and and uh, and buy another peloton bike uh, as you rejoin your gym membership, right? So the thing is that you have to take a look in a very general equilibrium sense. What's going to happen with the overall consumer spending pie? I actually found that for the next year, once we get past the pandemic, net, net, when you tack on the boom in services we're going to see, and we're going to tack on the uh, reversion to the mean on spending on stuff for the home, uh, it comes out to like a 1% increase temporarily in, in GDP growth. Okay. So that's your net incremental. Cause of course we're going to see a surge in some of those services. Um, but the pent up demand, it's not going to be a recurring, it's not going to be a recurring thing. We're going to make up for it. It's going to be a rush of, uh, of, of euphoria. Uh, and then it's back to reality and a, lo- a, lo- a lot of other things. Um, you know, one of the pieces of work that we did, was looking behaviorally, how is behavior going to change? You see, this again is where I differ from the consensus. I believe that behavior you know, is let, going to change. Let me uh, get in there for one second because yeah. uh, you, you, even before you start, let me uh, prompt you because you, there's a lot to digest and I want to make three different points uh, and especially about this change point. You know, so Richard Koo has this term. He was telling me balance sheet recession. That's what we were in. People, so, you know, Larry Summers is calling it secular stagnation, but he's talking about the, the level of debt that you have just like you were talking about, means that people are still going to be in deleveraging mode if you go back to the old normal with the new normal. That's the first point. The second point I would make is is, is that, you know, when people talk about uh, the roaring 20s, they're talking about, you know, a pandemic in 18 and 19, followed by a ridiculous recession uh, that, that we've prevented from happening. Uh, in the sense that there wasn't the level of stimulus that was necessary, the increase in in debt levels that we've had, and therefore there was much more ability for the the us to power through in the way that you're saying that the Chinese are doing. The third thing I would say is when you when you talk about change, I'm thinking about you know this example that you gave about going uh, for a flight. Why would I go onto an airline? Uh, to go to Mexico in the in the future, this new future that we have, when I could go to the Poconos instead, there's going to be some changes there. Uh, that means that a lot of businesses that are as they're configured today are going to go bust, and that change is going to have a negative impact on on GDP growth. So that that's my lead into what you have to say is that change necessarily means adjustment and adjustment doesn't mean off to the races. It means uh, difficulty. You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Well, let, let me just go back to the uh, the roaring 1920s. Uh, personal and corporate income taxes were reduced throughout the entire decade uh, because they could be. We went in with a much stronger fiscal position. Uh, the median age of the population was 10 years younger than it is today. Uh, and you're quite right. We, we actually um, never got a vaccine for the... Spanish flu, uh, a lot of people died. Different society back then. I think that they handled death differently than we do today, and there was no social media, but we just burnt our way through. Uh, and um, and uh, I would say, though, that the biggest 
um, difference, demographics aside and everything else, uh, is how a strong national balance sheet uh, provided the way it blazed the trail for a decade of lower taxation. Uh, we have a government in Washington now that got elected on higher taxation. Uh, we just haven't seen it yet, but that might be something the markets may have to chew on in the second half of the year, how that's going to be manifest. Because uh, we have to, the questions they were not asking in the 1920s was um, uh, who's going to pay for these massive debts and these massive deficits. Now, someone comes back to me and says, well, we're just going to do MMT. Uh, we're going to basically uh, inflate our way out of it. Okay, well, this is what amazes me too, is, is this quest for inflation. Uh, quest for inflation is just another way that the United States continues to desire to bail out debtors. Because who gets bailed out with inflation? is debtors, not savers, debtors. And, and so we didn't have this dynamic in the 1920s. In the 1920s, we actually had mild deflation. What does deflation do? It raises real purchasing power. But you see, we didn't have debts that we have today, so it wasn't destabilizing for the financial markets or the financial sector. Today, the debts are so high that, God forbid, if we go through deflation, think of what that does to the real cost of debt. It's going to lead to defaults. We cannot have deflation. We have a central bank now. Some of them are talking about we'll tolerate 3% inflation. I mean, that's not the end of the world, but let's just call inflation for what it is. It's actually one of the, one of the things that Jimmy Carter said he never gets credit for. Remember, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter was responsible. Uh, for replacing Miller uh, 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 with uh, Paul Volcker uh, back in the late 1970s. And it was Jimmy Carter that said, inflation is a tax on the poor and the elderly. Well, there you have it. And today we have a society, yeah, inflation, bring it on. Really? Well, it creates winners and losers. Okay, just like deflation creates winners and losers. But we had mild deflation in those roaring 1920s that actually boosted real GDP. What does inflation ultimately do to real GDP? It will depress it. So these people talking about the roaring 20s, uh, they just have, you know, they have, they feel they have to have this bullish narrative to sell because all their clients are bullish. Everybody that you talk to, most of you know, and this is why it's great for me. I have such a diverse client base. I don't have to talk to long-only equity managers all day long because they desire, they need, look, I did this. I was on the sell side so many years. People need to hear that. I want to deal with reality because. Uh, that's my uh, the, that's my natural habitat. Not bullish, not bearish. And by the way, you can always find something bullish to talk about. But uh, and I did. Um, we uh, did, but not. But it's not. And I have. But it's not. But but let me just say, it's not. It's not about. It's not about some BS story about the roaring 1920s. It's actually one of the most ridiculous things that I've heard. There's just so many differences. By the way, uh, I've written about that. But let me just talk about that. I my assumption that, again. People always say to me. You know, how can you bring 10 economists in a room, 10 different answers? Well, it's because, uh, you know, your assumptions drive your conclusions. You have, if I have a different assumption than my competitor economist, I have different set of assumptions. My conclusions will be different. Your assumptions drive your conclusions. My assumptions drive my conclusions. Where's my assumption? My assumption is that after a year of self-isolation and social distancing and dealing with this, I think this is a trauma. I understand now more than ever why when you're taking economics in university, they make you take sociology and psychology courses. It's ultimately a study in behavior. We have gone through a trauma and a shock. We haven't even fully figured out yet what the after effects are going to be. But I know 
that there's going to be after effects. I know that we went into this pandemic with over half the number of households in America did not have enough savings, cash, liquidity on hand to even get through three months of vital economic activity. That's going to change. All of a sudden, people are thinking that the savings rate is going to mean revert. No, no, it's not. And actually, we've done the work on it, that if the pre-pandemic norm was a 7% personal savings rate, the post-pandemic norm is going to be a 10% personal savings rate. People are going to be saving more out of current income. And there's not a more important behavioral aggregate out of the national accounts than the savings rate, that decision amongst the family budget, how much do we save or spend out of every incremental dollar that we're going to earn? That's going to change. And actually, the New York Fed, the New York Fed has given it to us on a silver platter. What did their survey? What did their survey show? Their survey showed out of these stimulus checks, we have the template already, that 71% of these stimulus checks went into, went into savings and debt reduction. The yeah, household yeah. sector, as, as, as the corporate sector is re-leveraging, and boy, the place to be in in the past year was triple C rated debt. These zombies are being allowed to stay alive. The government sector, of course. Households are deleveraging. And people say that's a good thing. Well, yeah, the household sector is getting its balance sheet into repair. Uh, that's a good thing. But it's not a good thing for GDP. Because every dollar that goes in the pay down debt is a dollar that could have been used to buy another Peloton bike. Um, but you're taking a look at the data, it's rather incredible as to the extent to which households are deleveraging. I suppose that the, the growth bulls would say it's a temporary phenomenon. It's going to put them in better shape in the future. I'm saying no. This is a realization that we went into this pandemic not only unprepared from a national healthcare perspective, but from a national balance sheet perspective. So households are deleveraging. I don't think that's going to uh, be a passing fad. And so if we're talking about a situation where the personal savings rate, and this is key, ask any economist, what's your forecast for next year? And then when they give you whatever number they're going to give you, you should probably ask them, so um, what are you assuming for the savings rate? Because you cannot have a GDP forecast and not have an assumption of what the savings rate is going to be. And so this, again, is where our assumptions drop our conclusions. We believe, and our modeling has shown, that behavioral change is going to be sufficient enough that the savings rate on average will be three percentage points higher. And that means that you're going to have almost a percentage point of GDP growth lost based on where we would have been pre-pandemic, the baseline growth. It doesn't take you necessarily back into a recession. What it tells you is that the future of aggregate demand growth is going to be quite a bit softer than it was previously. So I don't look at this deleveraging in the household sector as being a passing fad. And then we have to talk about what is it going to mean when, uh, God forbid, the government sector has got to go in the treadmill, the debt treadmill. We'll see if that ever happens. Um, but it'll be for, it'll be it'll be it'll be forced on the corporate sector as well. So the bottom line comes down to this comes down to this, and this is what makes the biggest difference. What created the conditions for the weakest economic expansion? Now we had a huge bull market in equities for different reasons, uh, because companies issued it was the biggest debt for equity swap on record. Companies issued a record amount of debt to buy back their stock. It didn't go into productive investment. Um, when to buy back their stocks, we had this illusion of a tremendous cycle of earnings per share because the share count went down to a 20-year low. It was really a classic, uh, what I call a Grigor Potemkin uh, bull market, but it was a bull market, but coexisted with the weakest economic cycle of all time. Uh, and that's because too much debt that has impaired the credit multiplier and why velocity of money continues to go down. People say to me, when are you finally going to get off your disinflation? Uh, and I'm going to say, well, you know, they say, look at the money supply, but you can't forecast inflation 
looking at the money supply without looking at money velocity. Uh, and money velocity is going down tit for tat. Actually, if you do the classic Fisherian identity, MV equals PY, and you solve for P, you solve for P, it comes out to zero. Yes, yes, I know. I know we have supply disruptions. We have commodity boom market, weak dollar, and there's inflation in goods. But look at the disinflation or deflation in services across the board, and not just cyclicals that you can say will come back, like restaurants and like airlines and like theme parks and movie theaters. <laughs> look at education. Look at look at tuition rates. Right. Uh, look at rents. That's the biggest, most important. Look at healthcare yeah. inflation right now. It's subsiding rather dramatically. These are so much bigger in the CPI, in the core CPI, uh, than merchandise is. And that's going to be that a dominating uh, influence. Uh, and that's why I think that the biggest disconnect right now, I mentioned this before, it's funny, that uh, the Cleveland Fed's 10-year inflation expectation metric is running around 1.3, 1.4%. But the TIFF's break-evens are running about 2.0, 2.1. And if the market ultimately has to move into where the Cleveland Fed's metric is, uh, we're going to get a 20% return on the long bond. And that's my forecast for the coming year. Well, there you go. That, you know, because you preempted me uh, because I was going to say, let's close this out with, yeah, what is your portfolio? How has it changed? Because that's a huge deal right there. Well, I could tell you that um, I, I've been advocating, um, I want to buy the stock market 20% down. So I've been using, uh, uh, I've been using the, uh, uh, I've, been sell I've, I've been selling calls on a view that I want to buy the market 20% down, pick up a premium. Uh, so that's one bucket. Uh, and how do you play your view that the market's going to go down? I'm still bullish on Asia. That's secular. Uh, I still like uh, uh, precious metals. Uh, of course, silver is uh, going up for a whole bunch of different <laughs> speculative reasons right now. But I'm still I'm I'm still long gold. I'm still mm -hmm. uh, long treasuries. I think you want to have insurance policies uh, in your portfolio. Uh, I still like that um, uh, the view of, of 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 owning growth companies. I'm not, I'm not really big on the value trade because value is going to need sustained inflation, higher interest rates. It needs a lot of things. It's a value trade, uh, but it's not a value trend. Uh, I still like growth. I prefer to better valuations, but growth with utility-like characteristics. I mentioned them, but not just in big tech, but I would say in healthcare. Uh, brand name consumer staples. And I'll say this much. I think that there's going to be a big bull market in energy infrastructure, energy infrastructure, um, and not just the equity, but also the debt. Uh, but but um, but energy, I would say that with a natural gas bent uh, is going to be a very good Let place. Let me interrupt you there, because uh, when you talk about um, growth stocks, uh, utility like growth stocks, you mentioned earlier, three of them. We talked about uh, Amazon. We talked Talked about Microsoft. We talked about Google. Of those three, which one of them is the most appealing, and why? Well, look, I'm I'm not a I'm not a stock picker, um, and they all have their. Uh, I mean, they all have their. Well, I mean, not from a. They all a have their attributes. I mean, they, look, they all share. They're, they're look. Uh, I mean, this this group in general is very expensively priced, but. Um, I mean, I said before you can throw you can throw Walmart in there. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and actually, Walmart was the only stock I think that didn't lose you money uh, in the great financial crisis. Um, so I'm not going to get into they each have their own particular characteristics. Um, uh, so I would say that, and I, I like them because uh, these companies are growth companies indeed, um, but they've been re-rated as as utilities because we need them. I, I've been saying all along, especially if you have this 
macro, how do you marry a macro theme of elevated savings rates with a market theme? Is focus on buying companies that provide what we need, not what we want, what we need. Uh, so I didn't just stop there. I mentioned uh, healthcare uh, and I mentioned big brand consumer staples. Um, but I also mentioned as part, if I want to play the recovery trade, if I want to play the recovery and there will be a recovery, I'm just not saying, I'm saying it's not going to be very robust. Uh, and that's why in general, you do want to have a robust recovery if you want to own value stocks outright. Um, but I would say that, um, that there are elements of energy uh, that are very attractive. Uh, there's no question that clean energy is going to be part of this upcoming infrastructure bill later this year. Um, and I would say that uh, the utility sector is going to be part of the revamping of the electricity grid. That, that's going to be part of it. Uh, and so I would say that if I was going to play uh, a recovery, there's only two sectors I'd want to be in right now, mm -hmm. energy and financials. And I say financials, like people are asking me, airlines here, casinos there, hotels, uh, restaurants, uh, but they're, 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 those are concentrated bets. And I don't think that we're going to be seeing um, a tremendous long-lasting resurgence in consumer service sector spending. I know people want to believe that. We'll get a couple of months or a couple of quarters. But what I like about the financials or what I like about the banks uh, is that they are just a more diversified way to play recovery. The banks are in every single business. I'd rather play a diversified way of the recovery through the banks than through buying isolated consumer cyclical services stocks. Uh, and uh, and energy to me is, um, you know, there's no such thing as a no-brainer in this business. Um, but uh, that's as much of a no-brainer, I think, as to have energy exposure in the portfolio. Energy infrastructure, in particular, natural gas, uh, that's 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 how I'd be investing right now alongside everything else I was talking about. Excellent. Uh, I think that we're going to end it there, Dave. It was great to talk to you as usual. Let's have you back on, uh, you know, once, uh, you know, once every two or three months just to check in and see what's what's happening. Yeah, I, I made a mistake before when I said uh, next time face to face, because then it would probably be. <laughs> 12, 18 months. No and I, I can't, I can't go that long without talking to you Ed, uh, on air. So, uh, yeah, we'll do this again soon. And, uh, thanks for inviting me on. You bet. It was a pleasure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.